Thank you for downloading the Beacon Church podcast. We hope that you enjoy today's message and that you find that God speaks to you through it. Um, it was uh, it was great when Nick talked about he talked about communion and the engagement. Um, you know, it's a very kind of wonderful picture, and it didn't surprise me that. Uh, Pauline reminded me of our engagement, um, which was nothing like the wedding feast of the Lamb. Um, And she reminded me that, um, I don't know why I'm telling you this, but she reminded me, I suppose it's it's true, she reminded me that when we first went to get a ring for our engagement, (laughs) um, we couldn't get the higher purchase agreement that was needed. (laughs) We went up to Hatton Garden... And uh, we, we realised um, after a little while that maybe this isn't the place for us to buy such a precious ring and we could find it in um, Lewisham Shopping Centre. So that's where we ended up. And there were a couple of things that happened there, going to Lewisham Shopping Centre, uh, that probably told Pauline what kind of marriage we were going to have. Um, and, and we still went for it, my love, didn't we? And it's proved to be exactly true. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, uh, and I knew she would remind me, she regularly reminds me of the things that I did not do well. And so I didn't do that well. I didn't propose well. I'll just let you know that I didn't do those things well. Yeah. I would do them differently today. um, And I would encourage you to do them differently. And some of you have already done them very well. Okay. So even though I've not been good at those bits, um, I am going to be talking about Um, uh, Actually, it's not just marriage. I'm talking about uh, marriage, family. uh, I think other things will come out of it, singleness, sex, relationships. But but I'm not trying to break them all up. Um, uh, I'm I'm just going to talk about them as we find them in the scriptures. Um, uh, And parenting as well. Um, Our aim is to understand, broadly speaking, how these things work and interrelate, and how the local church plays its part, how they affect us who are Christian, um, the impact that they have on our lives and on society around us. You, you would have heard me say before, if you've been at Beacon for any length of time, how um, society has moved away from Christian values, which is what, you know, fundamentally we were based on many years ago. We've moved away from that. And so what that means is, When you do look at what Christian values are, they can sometimes look a bit odd in the world in which we live. They're harder sometimes even to accept. And I'm conscious as I approach uh, these next few weeks that 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 could be the case, that there might be some things I say that in terms of our culture, you just go, I'm just not sure if I agree with that, Owen, or that's difficult for me to accept. What I'm hoping, though, is that I will be clear and not confusing about the truth, and that you will feel the comfort of God not condemned by what I say. So just so you know, my intention is not to condemn, my intention is not to judge, uh, my intention is to bring and present the truth to us as best I can. And um, that's how we're going to kind of look at these weeks. Uh, Today is probably going to be a little bit different. It's uh, I'm taking a kind of a thematic approach on how the account of marriage and stuff 
is threaded through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. I mean, uh, Nick already spoke about the end. He talked about Revelation 21 when it talks about the bride and, the, and, and, and Jesus being our husband. He talked about that. But it, it doesn't start there. It actually starts in Genesis. And you see, you see this story being threaded through the scriptures around marriage. And we're going to look at that um, today. What that means is that we're going to be referencing a number of texts. So I'm not trying to take one text and unpack it. I want you to get the full picture. And you might not go home and read all the texts. So I'm going to read them to you so that you get that full uh, picture of the scriptures on this subject. And although um, fundamentally it looks at marriage, within that you will see that we cover sex, we cover singleness, we cover family, we cover things, yeah? Because actually they are all related. So I want you to bear with me. I don't want you to think to yourself, this doesn't apply to me, uh, because it does, yeah? It applies to you, um, whether you be married or you're not married, this applies. And it also helps us in the 21st century to have a clear and healthy understanding of how relationships in God work. Otherwise, if we don't have a clear understanding, we just make things up, yeah? We just work things out, uh, maybe with our friends or whatever we read on social media, whoever we follow. And some of that, I'm sure, is good, but let's be honest, some of that is nonsense. And so I don't want you just to be exposed to nonsense without at least understanding. Oh, I get the picture. I get the picture of what the Bible is trying to communicate, what God is trying to tell us through his word. And hopefully it will help us, you know, almost contextualise ourselves in this big story. I'm asking you to fight the temptation to fight the truth. That You need to, in yourself, fight the temptation. And the temptation will be, Oh, yeah, this is one of Owen's things, yeah? That's just, he's just like that, yeah? Other, you know, if we were somewhere else, they wouldn't talk about that so much. This is one of Owen's things. Fight that, please. Fight the cultural temptation. When you hear me say things that you go, oh, but I don't believe that, I don't agree with that, that that's archaic, Owen. Fight it. Fight, fight the temptation that I know will come to rationalise things, to personalise things. Fight it and allow God by his Holy Spirit, to open your heart. And when he does that, he will change you. And we all need to be changed. Yeah? We all need to be changed. Just a couple of other thoughts, and then I'm going to pray, and we'll, we'll dive straight in to the scriptures. Fundamentally, what we are talking about is family. That's, that's really what we're d- talking about. But it's, it's worth noting that families are complex. They're important, but they are complex. We all need family, but sometimes we struggle to find family. And by family, I mean that place where I feel like I belong, that place where I've got people who know me, I know them, they've got my back, they're with me, they understand me, that we're journeying on life together, family. Some of us, we've not had that as a strong experience. Or maybe we don't find family with mother and father. We find it with our friends. That's who we consider to be family. We use different words and it's very 
you know, in the world today to talk about family is a very acceptable thing. We talk about our fam, our bro, our sis, our uncle, our father. I mean, have you ever heard the phrase, uh, I've had guys say this to me, that I'm a brother from another mother. I'm like, what kind of, what do you mean by that? Yeah. Now, we know what they mean. What they're trying to say is like, yeah, yeah, we're, we're together. We're close. Now, I must be honest, I've never used that phrase. Yeah? So, and if I haven't used it, don't be offended. It's not because I don't think you're family. I've just never used that phrase. Brother from another mother. Um, but people use it to describe these special relationships. And we understand family um, as broader than just blood. Yeah? It's not simply about my brother from the same mother. It's broader than that. We understand that. Because some of us, that family hasn't worked. Let's be honest, it hasn't worked. So we're trying to find family in other places. And you don't need to be a Christian for this to be real for you. You know, family is not, it's not only in the church that talk about family. You know, when the church talks about family, and sometimes we can almost be a little bit mocking of it, everybody talks about family. Everybody wants family. Everybody wants that kind of connection. You don't have to be a Christian to find it. Then I remember a few years ago, I may have told this story, when uh, Pauline, uh, Pauline was adopted when she was uh, about three months old. And uh, a number of years ago, we got in touch with her, her I suppose her birth parents. And her, her mum was living here, her dad was in Australia. And there, there came a point where um, her dad, who, who came over here, because his mother had died. So Pauline's natural mother had died. And we um, were invited to go to the funeral. And the family were from the old Kent Road. And we arrived at the funeral. And it felt like we had turned up at like a, a, like a, like a gangster gathering. They were all in long coats. I, I even think one of them, I'm, I'm not 100%, but I even think one of them had handcuffs on because he'd been let out of prison to come to the funeral. And then we were standing with these guys. It felt like the craze. That's what it felt like to us. And, but because we were there, and I was like, what am I doing in this room? Yeah, how did I get here? But because I was there, and because I was with Pauline, I was family. I was like, oh, I wonder what that quite means here, <laughs> to be family with, with you guys. Hey, yeah, yeah. I mean, there was another occasion where one of, um, when we first got in touch with uh, Alan, Pauline's uh, father, who was in Australia, he then, from Australia, sent his brothers to our house to, to, to talk to Pauline. And I remember um, coming home and she said, oh, yeah, I've just had so-and-so and so-and-so here. So they literally turned up, the, turned up at the door and they said, does your old man work for the Old Bailey? And she was like, yeah. And then he turned around and he said, it's here, mate, it's here. So in they came, these two guys... I wasn't there, thankfully, because I don't know what I would have done had two guys turned up at the house like that. But it was family. We were family. Or at least we were considered family. Today, though, we come as the family of God. God is our father. We are his family, the church. And we understand family best because of how God has presented it to us. Our father, God, had a son. And the son 
died for the church and drew them into this family relationships. And one of the bedrocks of the Christian family is marriage. Not to say everyone is married or everyone needs to be married, but it is a foundation stone, a building block upon which strong communities can be built. God is our father and he loves and accepts us just as we are. Okay, I'm just going to pray and then we're going to look at the scriptures. Father, I want to give you thanks for just the way you've been with us this morning, the way you've spoken to us through our worship and Father, the way you've opened our hearts. I pray we hear your voice today in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, I'm doing this kind of thematic timeline through the scriptures. And the first scripture that we're looking at is right at the beginning of the Bible. It's Genesis 2, verse 24 to 25, which talks about the two into one. Now, just so you know, I'm using a different translation of the Bible than I normally do. I'm using the New Living Translation. I just think it reads better on some of these things. Two into one. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. What's important to note here right up front is it's the Lord God. The Lord God made the woman. He had made the man, he makes the woman. And then the man's response to that is at last. Now, you'll know the story before this is the man is naming all the animals and, and they find out that there's no, there's no one suitable as a partner for him. So God then uh, goes through this process of making woman out of man. And then it says, and it almost seems a bit odd, but right at the beginning, chapter 2 of the Bible, not long after God had created man, he says, this explains why. A man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. So at the very foundation of the scriptures is this idea of marriage, the two becoming one. And what we'll find as we go through the scripture is that gets built upon. That never gets turned away. They never decide that's not important anymore. You'll see right to the end that that picture gets built upon. A man leaves and, if you like, he cleaves. The two become one. It's fundamental in marriage. And in this particular passage, it's talking about that in, in also in a physical way. It's a physical thing. The two become one, you'll see, when we look at it. And it says that they were naked, but they felt no shame. Now, God puts this institution, if you like, or this foundation of marriage into being before sin comes into the world. Because chapter 3, sin enters the world. 
And when sin enters the world, a couple of things happen. I mean, lots of things happen, actually, but a couple of big things happen. First of all, when sin enters the world, the relationship between God and the man changes. It changes. And then, not only that, the relationship between the man and the woman changes. When sin enters the world, when the consequences of sin... And you've got to understand sin not as judgment, sin is consequences. You know, if you said to me, if you were in the habit for some odd reason of driving up the M25 or up the M1 motorway the wrong way, somebody could say to you, if you keep doing that, you are likely to cause an accident in which somebody could die. That's a real possible consequence of that action, if you do it. You kept jumping into your car and driving up the motorway in the wrong way. Yeah? Somewhat, you're likely to have an accident and you're likely to kill someone. Yeah? It's a consequence. It's not a judgment, it's a consequence. When Adam and Eve sinned, when they acted recklessly, when they took the fruit that God said don't take, they acted recklessly, they acted rebelliously, the consequence of sin was a change in all the relationships. It changed their relationship to God. It changed their relationship to one another. It even changed their relationship to the land. It changed everything. You must understand that, that that, that sin is a consequence of action. And the original sin was a consequence of action. And what they were at that point were gatekeepers. And suddenly they'd let something in. Something had now come in. So, and that made the relationship between God and man confusing, difficult, and it made the relationship between man and woman confusing and difficult. It all happened at that moment when sin entered the world. It distorted relationship. Now, it's interesting, God makes Adam, Adam's priority relationship was with God. His next relationship was with his wife. We'd still push that. Your priority relationship as a husband is with your wife. That's your priority relationship. Yeah? Your, second rela- uh, your priority relationship is with God. And then your second relationship is with your wife. It's not with your children. It's not with your work. If you be Christian, it's God first. If you're married, it's she second. That's how it was from the very beginning. That's the way God determined it to be. But it changed Genesis 3. Now it's interesting, for the next few thousands of years, the interim between the first and the last books of the Old Testament, we have all sorts of pictures of marriage and relationships and stuff, but you must understand, they are not all how God intended it. When you look at the patriarchal system, when you look at uh, the man who had two wives, three wives, five wives, and all this kind of stuff, concubines and all that, God's not saying, and I want you to have 70... God's not saying that. You must understand that it's not, that's not how God intended it. In fact, the next moment where God really speaks what he thinks about it happens in the second chapter of the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 2, God's final word on this issue. 
and he's writing, he's speaking through Malachi to the people of God, he says to them, here is another thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, weeping and groaning because he pays no attention to your offerings and he doesn't accept them with pleasure. You cry out, why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? I'll tell you why. Because the Lord witnessed the vows you and your wife made when you were young, but you have been unfaithful to her. Though she remained your faithful partner, the wife of your marriage vows. Didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? In body and spirit, you are his. And what does he want? Godly children from your union. So guard your heart. Remain loyal to the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So guard your heart. Do not be unfaithful to your wife. You have wearied the Lord with, all, uh, with your words. How have you wearied him, you ask? You've wearied him by saying that all who do evil are good in the Lord's sight, and he is pleased with them. You have wearied him by asking, where is the God of justice? So you might read all sorts of things about marriage and relationships in the Old Testament, but when it comes to what he really thinks about it, you go to Malachi and he, and he makes this connection between worship and marriage. How interesting. God makes a connection between your worship and your marriage. And the Israelites were uh, maybe not bringing the right kind of worship. Why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? Why doesn't he do that? So over here you're thinking, why isn't God accepting? Why isn't he hearing? Well, it's because he witnessed your marriage and you're not being faithful to it. That's how important it was for him. You see it, it's the first thing he says, Genesis 2, one of the first things that happened before sin even enters the world, God puts this in place. Male and female, marriage. The last thing he says in the Old Testament. Now, between then and now, there are a couple of things that have developed that weren't there in that first passage. First of all, it talks about marriage vows. I don't know when the vows came in. Genesis doesn't talk about vows, but somewhere between Genesis and Malachi, marriage vows before God are made for marriage. But the same thing applies. Didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? Yeah, right at the very beginning, it's the two became one. Right here, it it reaffirms that. The Lord made you one with your wife. And in fact, here, it goes a bit further. In body and spirit, you are his. So it's not just a fleshly union. Actually, there's a spiritual union between a husband and a wife, which is maybe why he doesn't accept worship if this isn't going right. And he says, remain loyal to the wife of your youth. And then in Malachi, and and this troubles many people, it need not trouble us many, it says that the Lord hates divorce. Now, please understand, God does not hate people. God hates sin, yeah? So whatever sin it is, God hates It's specific here, he hates divorce. But if you've been divorced, don't don't sit there thinking God hates me. He doesn't hate you. You need to hear that. God doesn't hate you. He hates the act 
of divorce. And we can see why, because marriage is so important to him, he names it right at the beginning of time. He affirms it right at the end of the Old Testament. And then, after Malachi, there are a few hundred years. So so you've got these thousands of years that separate Genesis to Malachi in terms of when they were written. But they affirm the same thing. The two become one. That's God's design. Then there are hundreds of years between Malachi and the beginning of the New Testament in Matthew. Hundreds of years. And we come to Matthew 19. And we're going to look at that. Divorce here is not an option. Singleness is affirmed. And it says in Matthew 19, some Pharisees came and tried to trap him, that is Jesus, with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? Jesus answers, haven't you read the scriptures? They record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. And the two are united into one, since they are no longer two but one. Let no one split apart what God has joined together. They answered, why then did Moses say in the law that a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts. It was not, but it was not what God had originally intended. And I tell you this, Whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery, unless his wife has been unfaithful. Jesus' disciples then said to him, if this is the case, it's better not to marry. Not everyone can accept this statement, Jesus said, only in those whom God helps. Some are born as eunuchs. Some have been made eunuchs by others. And some choose not to marry for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone accept this who can. So right at the beginning of the New Testament, we find Jesus speaking into this subject. And they're asking him about divorce. Obviously, divorce had become an easy thing. Yeah? If you no longer, if your wife no longer pleased you, you could write a certificate and you could just go, right, off you go. Yeah? And that's what they had been living with as a people, as the people of God, for generations. They'd lived like that. They'd lived like that for generations. In Malachi, nestled in Malachi is this word, I hate divorce, but maybe they hadn't even picked up on that. But Jesus affirms it. God, God made them. When they ask about divorce, he says, God made them male and female. He returns to the beginning. This explains why a man leaves. And what does he talk about? The two are united into one. Jesus affirms that. Yeah, that's a critical part of marriage, leaving and cleaving, the two becoming one. It's a critical part of Christian marriage. And then, and often you, you, we have these words, kind of these words at the end of every kind of wedding ceremony, you know, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Those weren't just made up words, they're out of here, Matthew. Let no one split apart what God has joined together. And then they talk about the law and it's interesting, it's interesting because we don't think of God like this, but through Moses, God concedes something to the people. He concedes to them, look, you know, you're hard-hearted. If you want to do the certificate thing, you can do it. But here Jesus affirms that was not what God originally intended. 
Now, that's helpful for us because you can, it's not that we can read everything and, and try and change it, but you can definitely look at a lot of the Old Testament, a lot of the stories around relationships and marriage and kids and David had 18 wives or whatever it was he had, and you can say, do you know what? I don't think God originally intended that. That was not how it was from the beginning. That was not what he said. He says the two become one. He doesn't come and say the six become one. He doesn't do it. He talks about the two becoming one. And then Jesus, in making the point about whoever divorces, he's making a very strong point. But the strong point is fundamentally this. When you be Christian and you marry, divorce is not an option for you. But that is not meant to be a, a trap. Yeah? That's, that's in the same way, when you become Christian, God will never leave you. God will never leave you nor forsake you. He doesn't kind of hold over here, well, do you know what? And we're not to do that in marriage. I mean, in our culture, people get married and they have prenups, don't they? They have agreements that if it doesn't work out, I'll get this, you'll get that. You're not getting my red dresser. That's mine. The fish, they're mine. Yeah? And we kind of agree it even before we marry. That is not how Christians marry. When Christians marry, it's like you go into this, you take that key and you go, bang. It's me and you. This is it. For good or for bad. For better or for worse. In sickness and in health. For richer, for poorer. This is it. That's how Christians are to marry. Not everyone marries like that, but we should marry like that. Yeah, that's what it means. Yeah, because we believe and trust that God brings people together. It's not just you choosing, who am I going to marry? Am I going to marry this person or that person? No, God brings people together. But he concedes to hard hearts, and it's interestingly that he does that. There's this original intention. You could ask the question, why then does God allow things to happen in the Old Testament that just that don't fit that? Yeah, I'm not going to answer that question today. Yeah, but you can have that question if you want. But, but you could answer that question, why does God allow it? His original intention, we see in Genesis 2, it's really clear. He repeats it in Malachi, Jesus repeats it in Matthew. And then he talks at the end of this passage, um, and, and the disciples are really thrown, because this idea that you can't throw your wife away with a certificate is like, man, I'd better not get married then. Actually, that was never meant to be their response. Yeah, the challenge for them was, it's permanent, you know. It's real. You can't throw it away like some piece of thing. When you do it, you do it. That was the intention. But then he says, not everyone can accept this statement. Yeah, only those whom God helps. And then he uses these three things. Some are born as eunuchs. They need to know a eunuch is a... It's a government official, but also, essentially, it's a, it's a male who has had his bits chopped off so he can no longer have sexual relations. Yeah? That, that's what it was. So, so a, a eunuch doesn't marry. Yeah? We don't have eunuchs today, or at least not known, knowingly. Yeah? We don't know, I don't know any eunuchs. Yeah? But we do have people who probably, even from birth, know they're not going to marry. Although as they grow up, they think, oh, actually, that's probably not my thing. Yeah? 
So some, for some people, it's a sovereign thing that they remain unmarried. It's interesting here, though, it says some are born as eunuchs, i.e. there's a sovereignty in the fact that they won't marry. It says some have been made eunuchs by others, which is really saying that some people won't marry, but it's not necessarily their choice not to marry. But some won't marry. It's not necessarily their choice. That's just the way it has worked out for them. And then it says, and some choose not to marry for the sake of the kingdom. So you've got these three kinds of people. You've got people who, who are born in such a way that sovereignly they're not going to marry. It's not going to happen for them. Then you've got other people who may want to be married, but actually, because of situations and circumstances, it says made eunuchs by others, made unmarriable almost by others. And some make the choice themselves. Now, in our world, that's difficult. Because one of our fundamental values in the culture that we live in is choice. And it appears here that that's been taken away from me. A fundamental value that we have. But also, this is what the scripture says. Then moving on to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12 to 20. I'm really going to try and rush through these. It, it tells us to flee sexual sin. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. What it says is, you say, I'm allowed to do anything. But not everything is good for you. And even though I'm allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. You say food was made for the stomach and the stomach for food. This is true, though someday God will do away with both of them. But you cannot say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord. And the Lord cares about our bodies and God will raise us from the dead by his power, just as he raised our Lord from the dead. Don't you realise that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realise that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For the scriptures say the two are united into one. But the person who is joined to the Lord is one with him. Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realise that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price, so you must honour God with your body. So here we're reading the Apostle Paul. He affirms that same basic principle of the two becoming one. That's what marriage is. He affirms it. But he also says, uh, he also then says a number of other things. Yeah, This idea that I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. We live in a world where people do what they like. Yeah, People will do what they like. But here he's saying, yeah, you can do what you like, but not everything you do is good. And if you do what you like, you mustn't make yourself a slave to something, i.e. don't do things that you then become addicted to, that you can't get out of, that you can't get free from. You can do what you like, but you've got to be careful. And then in this day, in this moment in Corinth, in that church, people were using this argument, food's made for the stomach and the stomach for food. By the same token, our bodies are made for sex and sex for our bodies. Yeah? That was the argument. That's what they were saying to themselves. Like sex is an appetite. We can't help it. It's something that we've got to be fulfilled. 
Paul says, food is made for the stomach, the stomach for food. Yeah, I get that. He says, but you cannot say that your bodies were made for sexual immorality. Yeah, he refutes it. He says, no, that is not true. That is not true. They were made for the Lord. Yeah, your body, if you be Christian, was made for the Lord. It wasn't made for yourself and it wasn't made for you to do what you like. And then he goes on to talk about, don't you realise that our bodies are actually parts of Christ? And that kind of links to 1 Corinthians 12 when it talks about the body of many parts. Yeah, some of the hands, some of the foot. Our bodies are actually parts of Christ. And when he talks about should a man take his body, which is a part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute, he's giving you an extreme example. He's not saying that sexual immorality is only if you have sex with a prostitute. Yeah, it's almost like that's the extreme example. You should never do that. And then he repeats that mantra, the two are united into one. The person who is joined to the Lord is joined with him in spirit. Run, flee from sexual sin. And then we have this uniqueness of sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. There is something about sexual sin that it has an impact on your body in a way that no other sin has. That's what this is telling us. And you'll know that, you know, sexually transmitted diseases. They're, they're things that happen. <clears throat> the sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Have you not realised, Christian, that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? We often talk about the church being the temple. We often talk about being a community where God dwells by his spirit. And what this is telling us is actually the Holy Spirit dwells not just in us as a community, but as in me and an individual. When you come to church, when God speaks to you, when you lift your hands, when you feel his presence, when you then go and commit sexual immorality, you're taking that which is a temple, which the Holy Spirit dwells in, and you're connecting it to sin. That's what it's telling us. But the answer to that, it's not like a rule. Yeah, it's not a law. What does he say? So you must honour God with your body. He paid a high price for you. Honour him. Do the right thing by him with your body. 1 Corinthians 7. There's a number of passage verses that come out of here. But facing the reality, there are concessions and there are not commands. Now, he talks about the beginning of 1 Corinthians 7 regarding the questions you asked in your letter. Yes, it is good to abstain from sexual relations. But because there is so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. The husband should fulfil his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfil her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. And how many of us do that? Afterwards, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. But I, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, wish everyone were single, just as I am. Yet each person has a special gift from God of one kind or another. So I say to those who aren't married and to widows, 
It's better to stay unmarried, just as I am, but if they can't control themselves, they should go ahead and marry. It's better to marry than to burn with lust. Now I will speak to the rest of you, though I do not have a direct command from the Lord. If a fellow believer has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to continue living with him, he must not leave her. And if a believing woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to continue living with her, she must not leave him. So this talks about facing the reality. Now the reality is, although the Apostle Paul has talked about flee from sexual immorality, he's acknowledging in this church there's loads of it. There's loads of immorality going on. So much so that he says, look, it's better, rather than doing all of that, for all the reasons I've just given you about your body in the temple, marry, find someone, marry. And then, you know, when you have marry, have sex. And you do that, yeah, you might abstain for a while, but don't do that abstaining forever thing. Have sex. In order that, he's, he's like really hitting them because you lack self-control. And he says, this is a concession, it's not a command. So you don't have to do it, but you can do it. He goes on, I wish everyone were single. Now again, just as I am, let's not misunderstand that, 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 that verse, that passage. He's not saying that it's better to be single than to be married. I mean, he makes these points about singleness. He's not saying it's better to be single than be married, but it's certainly not worse to be single than to be married. So we have to understand that. We have to get that balance right of how we treat people, whether they be married or single. And then he talks about unbelievers who are married. Uh, you're a believer and you're married to an unbeliever. If your partner's willing to live with you, you stay with them. You don't leave them. And there are reasons for that, which I, I, I don't have time to go into. But later in the same chapter, 1 Corinthians 7, he talks about remaining as you are, and it's not a sin to marry. Each of you should continue to live in whatever, whatever situation the Lord has placed you and remain as you were when God first called you. He says, this is my rule for all the churches. For instance, a man who was circumcised before he became a believer should not try to reverse it. And the man who was uncircumcised when he became a believer should not be circumcised now, for it makes no difference whether or not a man has been circumcised. The important thing is to keep God's commandments. Yes, each of you should remain as you were when God called you. Are you a slave? This is a bit controversial for us. Are you a slave? Don't let that worry you. But if you get a chance to be free, take it. And remember, if you were a slave when the Lord called you, you're now free in the Lord. And if you were free when the Lord called you, you are now a slave of Christ. Now, regarding your question about the young women who are not yet married, I do not have a command from the Lord for them, but the Lord in his mercy has given me wisdom that can be trusted and I will share it with you. If you have a wife, do not seek to end the marriage. If you do not have a wife, do not seek to get married. But if you do get married, it is not a sin. And if a young woman gets married, it is not a sin. However, those who get married at this time will have troubles. Don't we know that? And I'm trying to spare you those problems. I want you to be free from the concerns of this life. An unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work and thinking how to please him. But a married man has to think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. His interests are divided. In the same way, 
A woman who is no longer married or has never been married can be devoted to the Lord and holy in body and spirit. But a married woman has to think about her earthly responsibilities and how to please her husband. I'm saying this for your benefit, not to place restrictions on you. I want you to do whatever will help serve the Lord best with as few distractions as possible. If a man thinks that he's treating his fiancée improperly and will inevitably give in to his passion, let him marry her as he wishes. It is not a sin. But if he has decided firmly not to marry, there is no urgency and he can control his passion. He does, not, he does well not to marry. So the person who marries his fiancée does well and the person who doesn't marry does even better. So sorry, that's a long passage, but the Apostle Paul is speaking into this church and the first thing he talks about is this idea of remaining as you are. You become a Christian, you're in this position, you remain in that. Part of that is he talks quite a lot about this present crisis, this present crisis, and it's not actually clear what he means by that, whether he's talking something about something that is very specific in that church or whether he's talking about just generally the present crisis, the present darkness that we're in, but he talks about that. But it's not a, but remain as you were. The important thing is that you keep God's commandments. Then he talks to people, you can get married. It's not a sin to get married, but he acknowledges unmarried men can be devoted to God's work and a married man, his interests are divided. And it's true. When you're married, your interests are divided. You can't do everything. You can't be everywhere. The same for the woman. He wants us to serve the Lord with as few distractions as possible. And in his opinion, the person who doesn't marry does even better. Yeah, that's not everyone's opinion, that's his opinion. 2 Corinthians 6, light and darkness don't mix. Don't team up with those who are unbelievers. How can, a righteous, how can righteousness be a partner with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? What harmony can there be between Christ and the devil? How can a believer be a partner with an unbeliever? And what union can there be between God's temple and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. So often the question comes up, you know, is it okay to, you know, if you want to be married and you, and you really want to be married, is it okay just to go and marry anyone like an unbeliever? The Bible says no. The Bible says no. The Bible said you marry Christian. And in fact, in the, the other passage in 1 Corinthians 7, later on, it says, it says of the woman, if, you're, if your husband dies, you can marry anyone you like as long as they belong to the Lord. And here it says, don't mix these two things. Now, you have to understand the uniqueness of Christian marriage for that to make sense to you. If marriage is simply about having a nice relationship with a nice person, it's, it's easy for you to think, why, why, why can't I just marry anyone? You need to understand, no, no, it talks about my body's a temple. It's a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's a temple of God. And then we come to Ephesians, which is probably the passage on marriage that many of us know about. Ephesians 5, submission and sacrifice, Christ and the church. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the saviour of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. 
He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. As the scripture says, a man leaves his father and mother, he's joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. It's a mystery, but it's an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This for us, again, in our culture, can be a difficult passage. Wives submit to your husbands. That's, that's, that can be difficult. In the 21st century, that takes a huge amount of humility. And some people say, oh, I don't, I don't agree with that. But equally, the, the, the suggestion, the condition for the husband is equally challenging if you do it right. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave his life for her. Husbands, do you love your wives as Christ loved the church? Do you give your life for her? Do you concede? Do you ensure, well, we're not going to row forever. I'm, I'm going to give in. I'm saying, no, I'm not, I'm not fighting this. And if you learn to love your wife like that, it's like loving your own body. And again, it talks about the two being united into one. So near the end, and I've got a couple of quick points. 1 Peter 3, honour, weaker and equal. 1 Peter 3, verse 7, In the same way you husbands must give honour to your wives, treat your wife with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you are, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you should, so your prayers will not be hindered. One of the challenges I think we face, even in, within the church, is this idea that men and women and everyone is exact, we're exactly the same. Everything's the same. Of course we're equal before God. But actually there are different roles. And this passage acknowledges those differences. It speaks to the husband, honour your wives, understand them. They might be weaker. This might be talking physically. They're weaker. They're not always physically weaker. But they're your equal partner in God's gift of new life. But then this passage kind of makes reference back to the passage in Malachi. Treat her as you should so your prayers will not be hindered. In Malachi, it talks about why is God not accepting my worship? Well, it's something to do with this. Why is God not hearing my prayers? It's something to do with this. And then the final passage in Revelation, just 21 verse 2, where we talked about, and Nick mentioned it, the heavenly bride, the church, coming down. So this is referencing Ephesians chapter 5, where we talk about this great mystery. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. This picture that at the end of time, there is the church comes down. It's a bride. That's the picture. That's the imagery. That Jesus is the husband. The church is his bride. That there's going to be this marriage made in heaven.
It began in Genesis, it ends in Revelation. But it's a challenge in the 21st century because our culture is changing. And it means the Christian life looks even more radical and sacrificial than it used to. One of the challenges we have is the challenge of human rights. The right to marry. The right to have sex. The right to divorce if I'm not happy. The right, the right. Now I understand we live in a world of human rights, but actually as Christians, that is not the thing that governs us. We're governed by a different set of values. We're not governed by rights, we're governed by devotion. We're governed by God's truth. And though there are moments where God speaks about rights, let's not confuse those moments with moments where he sets out his way very clearly. The two become one. It's permanent. It's for real. We're also challenged because we live in a culture that says, I can do whatever I want to do. No one tells me what to do. And the Bible kind of acknowledges that. Yeah, you can do whatever you want to do, but not everything you do will be good for you. And if you start doing things that you become addicted to, that's a problem. But it's a, it's, a, it's a fundamental value in our society. The reality of life that we often miss is God makes concessions. And he doesn't make concessions because he changes his mind or anything, but he makes concessions because he's gracious. When Adam and Eve sinned in chapter 3 of Genesis, when they sinned, when they rebelled, when they made it clear they didn't want to go God's way, what's the first thing he does? He, he, he tells them the consequences of, a, of their sin. What does he then do? It says he made garments of clothes for them. He showed kindness to them. He was gracious to them. That's the first thing he does. He tells them the consequences and then he makes garments for them. There's a reality and God understands that reality of life. And we all come in, not in a perfect world, we come in broken. We come in living with the consequences of sin. Our own sin, yes. Other people's sin, yes. But also that original sin. We come in with that. And then we must understand the uniqueness of what it means to be Christian and single in the 21st century. We must understand that. For Christian singles, celibacy is the value. If you be Christian and you want to be uniquely Christian as a single person, celibacy is the value. Celibacy, not not having sex, not engaging in sex outside of marriage. That's radical today. For young people, that is a, a radical thought. Well, for some young people, that's not even a thought. But for Christian young people, that must be a thought. If you want to live Christian, if you want to honour God, you stick to his ways. Radical. Also for the Christian single, there's this idea of undivided devotion. Undivided devotion. It's not like, oh, now I'm not married, I can kind of do exactly what I like. No, it's now I'm not married, I can do what, what he likes me to do. What does he want me to do? The uniqueness of being Christian and being single. The uniqueness of being Christian and being married is in those words in Ephesians 5. It's about submission and it's about sacrifice. That is not normal 
In fact, celibacy for Christian singles means that some people won't become Christian because they, that, they don't like that. That's the reason. Oh, man, no, I'm not going there. Why would a non-Christian, not, not come, non-Christian couple not come to faith when they realise actually Christian marriage requires submission and it requires sacrifice and it's permanent? Now, permanent, people can do that. Now, I'm not saying that people don't submit and they don't sacrifice, but for us, that's the thing. And when we take that out of the marriage context, when we take out submission and sacrifice and we say it's not about that, everything's equal, we remove the very thing that makes us unique. The very thing that makes us different. The two become one. Yeah? You don't, it doesn't, it never breaks. Marriage is a picture of the gospel, which is why we end in Revelation. You see, what we must understand today is the Christian life is not lived by rules and regulations. You must get that. It's lived by honour and devotion. That's the thing that drives it. I do things because I want to honour him. I do things because I'm devoted to him. It's not the rule. It's not the red line. It's not the, oh no, if I cross that line, then it's all over. No, it's about honour. It's about devotion. It's the kind of thing you want to do to your husband, to your wife. It's the kind of thing you might want to do to your children, to your friends. You want to please them. You want to honour them. You don't go around life trying to avoid them. If you want to come to God, if you want to live for him, you honour him. You honour him in your relationships. You don't just honour him on a Sunday morning. You honour him every day. Let's pray together. I mean, I've thrown a lot at you. Sorry. But I feel like we need to get the picture. We've kind of got to get it. We've got to understand it. So we know what we're following. We know what we're doing. We're not making it up as we go along. We're following something that was said at the very beginning of time. The two become one. But I also just want to acknowledge that I know we're not perfect, we're broken, all of us, me included. There are things that we do that we shouldn't do. There are things that we say that we shouldn't say. There are things that we think that we know we shouldn't think. We're, we're all there. That's not, that's not revelation, that's just reality. But I do want to pray that, that for some of us, we will maybe make some kind of decision in our minds that, yeah, the thing I want to do is I want to honour him. I want to express my devotion to him. I want my body to be like that temple where he dwells by his spirit. I want him to receive my worship. I want him to hear my prayers. And I'm just going to ask if, if that's you. I'm not asking about all the stuff. I don't know about all the stuff. But if you want to honour him, if you want to be devoted to him, 
I want you to stand where you are and I'm going to pray. Okay, let's, let's just lift our hands. If you're standing, if that's, if that's what you're saying, you might have felt, oh, everyone's standing, I need to stand, but whatever, you've stood. I'm just going to pray that he will help you. Val talked earlier about help. God helps. God helps. Father, we, we come to you. Um, uh, Lord, I acknowledge we're, we're a body, but actually we come as individuals here because these things impact me. It's not just that they impact us, they impact me. And so, Father, we come to you today and we say, as best we know, in our hearts, we want to honour you. And that means we want to do it your way. We want to live this life your way. We don't want to do it our way. And Father, we come with a desire to be devoted to you, which means we want you to be the centre, you to be the preoccupation of our world, of our lives. And whatever that means in this life, that's what we want to do. That's what we want to do. And Lord, I I acknowledge that for some of us, maybe we're involved in stuff, we're doing stuff. And Lord, if this be real for us to honour and to be devoted, we'll repent of that, we'll deal with that. We'll do whatever we need to do to ensure you are honoured and you are our primary devotion. So I pray, Father, for every person here. I ask, Holy Spirit, as we said very earlier on, very simply, that you will come and help. That these folk, Lord, their bodies are temples in which you dwell. And that is an incredible, incredible truth. And I pray that as you dwell in them, you will help them live life the way that you want them to live. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can sit down. Sorry we went on. Um, One of the things that we just wanted to do over the next few weeks, because I won't be doing what I did today again, um, is if you have questions, I'm really happy for you to either uh, write them down. I think Jen might have a little bit of paper. You can write them down and put them in the offering box at the back. If you've got questions that you want to ask anonymously or you've got comments that you want to say anonymously, you can do that. Or I'm really happy just to talk to people if you want to, you know, if you want to clarify something or talk about something, I'm really happy to do that. Um, So I'll just be down here and I'll make myself available um, just to talk to people um, if you want to do that. Cool. Well, I'm sure there's tea and coffee and other stuff. You have just listened to a Beacon Church recording. If you would like more information about us, our vision, the team or upcoming events, please visit our website, which is beacon-church.org. You can email us at office at beacon-church.com or find us socially on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. You are welcome to share this recording as you wish, but please do not make any edits without express consent. Thank you.